Hello with CP Podcast listeners. This is your host, Julia. It is Wednesday, September 28th. It's 2.12 p.m. And today we'll be talking about education. And I have brought a wonderful, incredible guest speaker today, Dr. Terry Scott, to join us and talk about what's been going on with critical race theory and the general attacks on education in the United States. Dr. Scott, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on your incredible podcast. I am Dr. Terri Ann Scott. I am the director of the Institute for Common Power. We are essentially the educational arm of Common Power, and we launched in June of this year, just about four short months ago. I am by training a professor of African American history in the United States history. And so I think a lot of our readers or listeners know that I left a position as chair of the history department and an associate professor of history to from Hood College in Maryland to direct the institute. And so I like to say I have not walked away from education. What we're trying to do in the institute is transform the way education is used to motivate people. Thank you for introducing yourself. So yeah, Dr. Scott, you come with an incredible, incredible background um, and experience um, with like education. So, So what's been going on with critical race theory in the United States? And what what is critical race theory exactly? Right, and I'm, I'm glad you asked. And so, I mean, it's a long, definition that we could use to examine critical race theory. The first thing I always tell people is the only time I have ever really talked about it or taught the theory is in uh, my courses on African Americans and the law, both at the University of Washington when I taught there and then here at Hood College. It is not something that enters the classroom typically and is certainly not something that enters a third or fourth or fifth grade classroom in the way that people across the country are suggesting that it does. And so I'm of two minds on that. So first, at its base, critical race theory really examines how race and ethnicity and identity factor into the creation of laws, um, into structural racism, into intentions behind the creation of laws, and why certain things, uh, why certain people are motivated to allow for certain concessions or to create um, laws that dismantle racism. And so it deals a lot with structural racism. The issues that we, and I would be happy to talk to any listener further about this. I know we have limited time here. The issues with critical race theory across the country is that people have been using it for their own purposes, those who want to quell truth by conflating the history of race and racism with the concept of critical race theory. And so they have created critical race theory into something that is deemed automatically negative and dangerous. And many of the arguments that circulate around why there should be um, the stoppage of the teaching of quote unquote critical race theory and what they mean is the actual history of race and racism in this country is because they said it makes white children feel uncomfortable. It is completely dismissive of the idea that how do children of color feel by not seeing the truth taught in their schools, number one. And it also discounts the fact that all children across racial boundaries accept truth and move forward into a better future when they know it. I cannot tell you how many times I have had students, whatever color or racial identity they are, including white students, say to me after particular lectures on reconstruction or lynching or Malcolm X, why haven't I already learned this? 
They're upset about that. They're trying to understand why it is that they had to come into a classroom in college before they ever understood any of these concepts. Yeah, so so that's so, it's so interesting to me. Um, like, kind of like, do you think this question of like critical race theory and these debates about it in the U.S. have are they a new thing? Is it just something that's come up in the past couple of months? Is it something that's been bubbling up for years? Like, how how is this issue kind of emerging? Why is it emerging? Has it so been there? I, yeah. Well, two things: American school systems have never done a particularly good job about teaching the truth in in the in their history courses or anything related to that government civic engagement. And so there is a reason why, again, that those students come to a college classroom where I'm teaching either U.S. history, because I'm very inclusive when I teach that, or or something about African-American history and say, I learned this. And so it's never been taught well. The backlash now to what we see, and this is my own um, assessment of it, and I think a lot of people will agree, is that we had a moment of racial awakening in 2020, not just in the U.S., but really around the world in many ways as people watched what was happening here. We had a pandemic that in this country exposed very much the kinds of racial disparities that exist for BIPOC people when people of color, particularly brown and black, were dying in disproportionate numbers to uh, their white counterparts, and people of color in all urban spaces were dying in disproportionate numbers. It exposed disparities in healthcare and health outcomes. And then, of course, we had what happened with George Floyd and the lynching, what I call a lynching of George Floyd, and then Ahmaud Arbery. And you have this perfect storm of moments where people are home seeing on television, reading about, hearing about, experiencing these racial disparities that COVID exposed, and then watching people be murdered on television, largely because the crime that they had was the color of their skin. And so we see from 2020, 2020 was almost like an Emmett Till moment for our generation. And so we see companies beginning to address racial disparities. We see programs across the country trying to teach more classes on the history of people of color. We see more people of color being hired in places, companies acknowledging that they haven't done well and they'll do better. People moving forward at the same time in a country where Trump has allowed, and his 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 people, we don't just want to say him, people who are supporting him have allowed those who already have these kinds of um, racist notions that they're harboring, it has allowed them to become emboldened. Then you see a pushback against a racial awakening. You see people saying, wait a minute, all of this woke and all of this is too much. It pushes against the status quo. It takes me out of my comfort zone. It challenges the power that I have. And so I am going to stop that at every cost. And that is why you see governors like DeSantis and Abbott and other politicians and people who are running for local school board attempting to disrupt this, to really really promote white supremacy over truth. That's what that is. Even here, right here in Frederick, Maryland, where many of our educators who are going on the educator learning tour, we have a contingency of people who are running for the local school board on a platform where they say indoctrination or education, not indoctrination. There are three individuals. I recently was commissioned by the Frederick County Public Schools to lead an effort to create a a course on African-American studies. We completed it. It has successfully been implemented into the schools as of this fall. It is an elective. 
You don't even have to take it. And that group of people who are running to be on the school board have already begun to admonish the course and would like to remove it from the schools. It is not even something that a student has to take and they want to remove it. That's what we're facing right now. And if somebody tries to divorce those concepts from white supremacy, they are wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is interesting. We've heard this argument a lot come up recently. It's education, not indoctrination. Could you could you delve into that a little more? Like, what does that mean? Well, what they mean it is, is they would prefer to privilege some nationalistic history over the truth. And so they don't want to talk about the history of lynching or the history of enslavement or any of those things. In Florida, actually, there was a teacher who had a poster of black heroes, Harriet Tubman and other people, and the district made him remove it from the walls of his classroom. So they can't even talk about about black heroes. These individuals who say education instead of indoctrination see truth as indoctrination. Because what they want to push is something similar to, for instance, what teachers are being trained on in Florida that says you can talk about how wonderful George Washington and Thomas Jefferson was, but you cannot talk about the fact that they own slaves. That is actually part of the dictates now for public school teachers in Florida. They consider truth indoctrination. Mm. That's what we're facing right now. Absolutely. So, so how are educators like on the ground, like grappling with this question of like, are, are educators like scared to talk about like, I don't know, history, the truth? Some are. When we went on our learning tour in Texas um, in February and we met with a fifth grade history teacher in Waco, Texas, he said he is afraid to teach about anything related to race or racism because he's afraid he could lose his job. And that's the intention behind this. So not only are they codifying the inability to teach the truth, it is also causing a lot of educators to be fearful. It's also causing, and and with reason, educators are underpaid already. And so it is not for us to say, well, too bad, you should go ahead and teach that even if it means losing your job, because for them, losing their job could mean losing their home. It means losing their medical insurance. It could mean not being able to support people they have at home. And so they are really in a precarious position, which is why we want to do whatever we can in the Institute for Common Power to support them. And so it means not only helping those who are able to teach this learn what it is that they should and can teach, it also means emphasizing the importance of local elections, like school board elections. I will say it forever. People have heard me say it. It is so eminently important that people think about and research and understand the importance of your local elections because so much policy is created right there. Absolutely. So. So yeah, I definitely like I agree with you. I'm like so much power is concentrated in like school board elections, right? Um so for those who don't know about school board elections like myself, like could would you be willing to like explain kind of the power and importance that school boards hold on education curriculum, influence Absolutely. on teachers? So for instance, the course that I just mentioned that I helped to create That course, before it was implemented into the school district, had to go to a vote before our local school board. Our local school board consists of nine members. Each one of them is elected by the public. Sometimes school school board members are elected by a margin of a single number of votes. That's how close these elections are because many people don't go out and vote for the school board. They vote for the larger things. They don't even think about that. And so imagine then if you have a group who is running together to take over a school board and they win. And so here in Frederick, we're less worried about it because only three of them 
who are part of this education and not indoctrination platform made it to the finals. And so if they get elected, then we'd have a board that is six leaning in a very positive, non-white supremacist way, and three who are leaning in a different direction, who also want to implement uh, the don't say gay policies that you see around the country, all of these really iniquitous things that target certain groups of children. And so we don't have to worry about it as much. It would make school boards contentious, the meetings, but in other places around, that's just Frederick, Maryland, in other places around the country, if those individuals are elected, they have power to decide what classes are taught in the classroom, what classes are not taught in the classroom. They have a huge say on who the superintendent is. They create policy uh, such as the Don't Say Gay Law uh, Acts and things of that nature. So local school boards have tremendous policy. The other people who have policy are state school boards. Typically state school board members are appointed by governors. Mm -hmm. And so that renders further why it is so important to have, you know, the gubernatorial elections are so important because they control so much, including the people who are on the school boards for the state. And those individuals are the ones who decide what textbooks even are going to be in the classroom or what books won't be in the classroom. School boards decide that. They can ban certain books. You had an example that you mentioned to me earlier about a book that was banned in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, the the mench- the example that Dr. Scott's talking about earlier. Um so just this week I was like reading in the news on like the headlines um the Girls Who Code book series was banned in uh, a Pennsylvania school district and as I mean I have read some of those books. They're literally books that teach women how to code, how to secure their own financial freedom and future and it's honestly about like female empowerment. Like there's and then um, the school board, I believe, is also arguing that having children read girls who code books is indoctrination, not education, which is baffling to me. So it's despicable. It just is shocking. But at this point, I think very few things are shocking for us that <laughs> would ban that series of books. Right. And so that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Right. So why why is um the attacks on critical race theory, why are these battles playing out in schools? So I, I don't, like, I mean, these are these are children, right? And often young children, like, from elementary all the way to high school, like, why is this playing out in the classroom? I think those are the places, so typically you can control society when you control its youth, right? Mm. I mean, it's the same kind of targeting that Hitler did with youth in Germany. And so when you can take youth and begin to shape their minds, then you control the future. And so to think that it is not that calculated would be wrong. It is that calculated. Much of it is also a response to the 1619 Project, also something third graders are not reading. But it becomes a response and a concern to that and filters down into the classroom. Because, you know, one of the things that you can do to get constituents on your side is to say, hey, mom and dad raising kids, I'm on your side and I don't want this, that, and the other to happen. And this is what I'm going to do. And then you have all of these parents who then go and vote for the Abbots and the DeSantis because they say, oh, he's really into education and he's concerned about my kids too. So it's like an appeal to the families or like. one hundred. Yeah. It's an appeal to the families. It is. I mean, you know, the intentions I think are very similar. The percentage of what intent is into what for each individual act. Who knows? But the intention is to 
take and they're the ones honestly who are indoctrinating right they're the ones who are teaching these kids false falsities falsehoods and then also to appeal to those parents who are voters right right absolutely so so i mean clearly the state of critical race theory is at a critical point right now in the united states um along with education i would say in general um so what what can we do about this and i mean you've already mentioned some some suggestions and solutions but what can we as a society do about this what is common power doing about this what is the institute doing about this so one of the things common power is you know we push voting so not only registering to vote but then going to vote and running for office yourself anyone can run for office as well so i've already gone on about the importance of those local elections that's one thing to do the other is to educate yourself we offer a series all the time of lectures most of which are free and if somebody can't afford to pay for a lecture that cost email us and we will comp you so that you can attend that lecture we never want anything out of reach for anyone and so we empower you with the information to have conversations with others to motivate you into action we do lectures on everything from the history of voter suppression to current um roe v wade rulings to last night we started a new series called Tuesdays Together. And that is one, each week we will get together. It is an open forum for people to come and be supported. These are disillusioning times. These are challenging times. Tuesdays Together gives us a moment to be in communion with one another, to be together um, with people who have a similar goal of creating an inclusive democracy. And we have a little trivia and you can win a prize from it too. <laughs> so we have that. We do um, learning tours. Our most recent one that we're doing in a few weeks is the educator learning tour. And we have given scholarships to K through 12 teachers from across the country so that they can come and learn in Georgia and Alabama and meet civil rights heroes and learn from people who are doing the hard work on the ground today. And the only thing that they have to pay back to us is create a lesson plan based on what they learn that we make available on the Institute website for free to educators around the world. Many of the teachers going are um, department leads or administrators. We have several curriculum developers for their respective districts. And so this kind of information will influence what they do and what they carry forward. Um, We also have something called Scholars in Motion that's been going on. We also believe not only do you have to have political power, you have to empower people economically. There is great generational um, racial disparity in wealth in this country. And so one of the ways to fix that is to provide as best we can opportunities to kids who have typically been marginalized. And so that includes a lot of BIPOC youth and particularly those who live in housing projects. Scholars in Motion is for high schoolers who live in housing projects to provide them with the opportunities that many of their counterparts have. For instance, today we just bought calculators for the seniors who are taking the SAT this coming Saturday, and they'll be taking it um, for the net, they'll take it three times actually, because one of them, before we had this program, took the SAT, did not have a calculator, the school did not tell her any way to, to be able to get one, and she did poorly on the SAT. Many of the people listening have taken the SAT. It is nearly impossible to do well without a calculator. Something as simple as that. We've provided them with SAT training, they're meeting with tutors twice a week prepping them for the SAT. We give them tutoring for their classes. We help them create their common app so they can apply to school. We're taking them on a trip to visit schools next month. None of this costs anything for them. These are the kinds of things that the Institute is providing because we understand that if we can help them advance and go to college, that creates 
generational wealth for those youth. That's fabulous. I I'm I'm baffled to hear about that story about the woman who was not who wasn't provided a calculator to take the SAT. I mean, I I took it just a few years ago and I could not pass that without something as simple as a calculator, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, I have chills. I literally went to Target today. We got calculators <laughs> and we brought them to the students and scholars in motion. Yeah. And then they'll give those back to us and then we'll give them to the next set of students who are taking the SAT. You, like you said, you cannot do well. Just something as simple as that that we don't think about that's going to make such a difference for those students. Right. Right. And and I, I love that you're creating economic opportunity for these students. You're creating educational opportunities for the teachers. Like, the Institute is really helping out every single, like, I guess, like, constituent of education, all the way down from the teachers to the students. And I would be remiss to not emphasize, first of all, we know that in CP, all of the different organizations in CP, we, we, we meet with each other, we learn from each other, we help each other. There's an institute team that is on the ground doing this work. And so it consists of myself, Dr. David Domke, Devin Geary, and Jordan Schulte. Those three people are incredible, highly motivated people with pure hearts. And so that is what makes the Institute keep going. In addition to people like you, Julia, and other people at CP who are doing work to support the Institute and all of the volunteers and the donors who help make things possible. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott. This has been an amazing podcast. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up here, but is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign off? No, just that. I mean, let's keep the good fight going. And I hope to see people on the ground or phone banking or texting or whatever you can do before this midterm election. So, Julia, thank you for having me. Thank you for all of the incredible work that you do for CP. You are amazing. You are the face of next generation leadership. So thank you, Dr. Scott. All right, listeners, take care. Bye.